You are now listening to Bookish. The canon continues. The podcast that's dismantling the sacred secular divide with your host, Michelle Collins. Okay, so we are talking with Kevin Miller today. I'm really excited and a little bit intimidated about this conversation, in all honesty. Um, Of course, Kevin, just for your knowledge, and I know we kind of briefly chatted about this already, but just to give you a brief explanation, you know, the idea of inspiration, of course, for many people is only applicable to the Bible. Um, they feel that there is no error and things like that. And, and for me, I, I, in reviewing that, I mean, I believe that for a very long time. Um, but suddenly I felt like, but I think about God in a lot of different contexts and I receive inspiration from a lot of different places. And so the idea, of course, is we're bridging that sacred secular divide. And of course, we're doing it through books. What's inspiring? And so I'm so excited that you agreed to come and sit down and chat with me about the book of your choice. Again, I'm a little intimidated by the book of your choice, but that's okay <laughs> as well. Um, because the, the great part of this, of course, is that it pulls me out of my comfort zones where I may get stuck and uh, allows me to kind of open myself up to some new educational opportunities um, and to grow a little bit more intellectually myself. So I'm really excited about that. I am, however, uh, familiar with the book that you've chosen and with the subject matter. So that should be somewhat helpful. We'll see how familiar that that's to be determined. Um, but thanks very much for being here. So welcome. Um, I, I don't know what to call it. Let's call it the back of the book bio. Um, go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself, what you've done, who you are, what you're doing. Um, and let everybody know what they can expect. All right. Yeah. So yeah, I'm Kevin Miller. I have been a lot of things, but over the last 25 <laughs> years, I've primarily been a writer in some form or another. So I spent a lot of time working in publishing um, and then I got into mm-hmm. film. And so I've spent a lot of uh, my career in film working on uh, documentary films, a lot of feature length documentaries. I've worked on some feature films, short films. I've been a writer, producer, director, editor, you, you name it. I also <laughs> have a comic comic book series I'm writing right now, uh, oh. a series of uh, middle grade novels for uh, uh, kids. And I do a lot of speaking and teaching and that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of all over the place. But I, I definitely uh, I'm a omnivorous uh, <laughs> reader, omnivorous thinker, omnivorous writer. I'm, I'm I have the gift of being curious. And so. Uh, writing and making films is a great way for me to explore all kinds of things that I'm interested in. And writing is a really refined way of of thinking. Um, so I just wrote the first chapter of a novel yesterday, and uh, it's a kind of a, a tweens horror novel. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I just got fascinated by the gap between this character's teeth and what that had to say about the rest of his whole <laughs> persona. So, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, you just never know your brain. It's, it's a, such an interesting, I had to follow that thought and that ends up becoming the, the cornerstone of his character, that gap in his teeth. And, wow. and, um, so I think writing is such an interesting opportunity to, uh, stop for a moment and process these thoughts that are continually arriving at the forefront of our brain. Most of the time we just sort of let them drift past, but when right. you write something every once in a while, you're able to pin one down and really explore it. Yeah, I agree. I again, I share your your love of learning and being inquisitive about so much. Unfortunately, sometimes that works against me as I'm sure you've found as well. There's not enough time. Yeah. Right. Um, which is a big disappointment. Um, but again, I I found the same th- thing with writing. Uh it's very cathartic for me. 
Um, and that's how I started writing. I started writing, using it as a way to express myself and deal with my emotions on, on a different, on a wide variety of subject matter, but certainly religion. And, uh, that has evolved. Of course, I'm, I'm supposed to be in the middle of finishing a book. I'm hoping that's going to be done soon. Um, my brain tends to not cooperate often. Um, but the stuff you're working on sounds amazing. Um, and I'm fascinated by the idea of building a character about the gap in his teeth. (laughs) That's awesome. <laughs> well, and it's nothing conscious. It's just sort of something that wells up from the unconscious right. and, and then you begin to uh, unpack it. I think that writing for me, whether it's a film or a book or whatever it is, I don't see it as really so much a creative enterprise as a, as a I feel almost like an archaeologist or a paleontologist mm-hmm. that I'm, I'm excavating uh, things that I find. And I, you know, so, yeah, it's so interesting when I, I look at, like I've just completed a film and I can stand back and look at it and almost just really feel I can evaluate it objectively because I almost don't even know how it, how it happened. Mm. <laughs> you know, even though right. I was very much involved in it, it's because it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's something that I almost feel I somehow birthed into the world, but I, I can't really almost uh, feel responsible for it. Yeah. I've had that experience with things I've written. And if I go back and read them from the past, I'll look at them and I'll go, who wrote this? Like, mm-hmm. I don't remember feeling this or thinking it, you know, and you can, you have, like you said, that outside perspective. Um, and, and it's very, it's helpful too, because it's helped me kind of map my process and my journey, um, which is of course has quite a bit of cathartic value as well. So, mm-hmm. um, but that's awesome. I'm really excited about your new projects. Of course, you had mentioned earlier, you have an, uh, a new movie that you're doing, which is amazing. I'll look forward to hearing about that. Um, and of course, and then the one, as we had already kind of just briefly discussed, the one that, of course, most people, or at least me, uh, are aware of is, is the documentary Hellbound, which was very eye-opening to me, and I know for a lot of people. Um, so I know that we're not talking about movies today. We're talking about books. And mm-hmm. so when when we had talked about having you come and sit and chat for a while, you'd had a couple choices, but the primary one was, I'm going to let you introduce it. Tell me about the book, the writer, and and kind of just open the conversation. Sure. So the book I chose uh, is called I See Satan Fall Like Lightning by René Girard. René Girard, is, uh, he's passed away now a few years ago. I actually had a mm-hmm. chance to meet him shortly before he passed, which was uh, quite, a, quite a fanboy moment for me. <laughs> um, but uh, he was a French, uh, uh, we'll, it's, it's, he's kind of a hard guy to pin down. I mean, he was, uh, he taught French literature, but he ended up uh, from his perspective on French literature, really becoming a philosopher and I would argue an anthropologist. Mm -hmm. And um, so he's famous for something called mimetic theory, which was his way of trying to understand uh, the origin of violence in human cultures and the solutions that we have come up with to deal with the problem of violence. And he would, I think, argue that uh, violence is really the primary problem that humanity has had to deal with throughout its history. And so he was trying to figure out where does violence come from? Um, And uh, this is where he comes up with this idea of mimesis, which means imitation. And what happens is he would say that the truest thing about a human being is, is that human beings are uh, imitators. And he, that's not an original idea with him. He's really, I think Aristotle was one of the first one, first, you know, big thinkers to say that's one, that's really one of the truest things you can say about a human. And the problem is, is that we are imitation in itself is a good thing. That's the primary right. way that we learn. That's how we uh, become encultured and socialized and all that sort of thing. 
but and and we do that by imitating each other's desires but the problem is 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 imitating other people's desires can very quickly put us in conflict with the people that we're imitating or with our fellow imitators um and so uh you know for all desiring the same thing we can't all have that thing and so eventually that that leads to conflict and so what rene did was was really um go really deep into this he his perspective on trying to understand this began with some observations that he was making as he was studying french literature and once he started to see a pattern emerging he turned his attention to mythology mm-hmm. um, to see if he would see something similar and the real aha moment for him was when he then turned his sights onto the jewish and the christian scriptures because what he saw right. there was something that 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 looked very similar to what he was seeing in mythology, but suddenly all of the motifs um, had been changed or reversed. And something that he has another book called "Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World," and mm-hmm. and and that's really a key part of his theory is that um, this this desire to to imitate and to also to be the one that others imitate. It's a highly uh, unconscious thing that's driving us, and so. Right. uh, That's why he talks about things hidden since the beginning of the world. And what he saw in the Bible is uh, an emergence, a bringing of something that's very much an unconscious motivator of human behavior. It's being brought into conscious awareness for perhaps the first time in history. Right. It's interesting because, of course, he began this conversation. And and since then, of course, there have been quite a few other um, authors that have mentioned it or even gone very in depth into their study of, of mimesis itself. Um, you know, and some of the, the other authors, I mean, one that comes to mind immediately is Michael Harden, um, yes. who is a friend of mine. And of course he talks about there being no inter, inter individual autonomy, which is basically the foundational idea of mimetic theory. Like you were mentioning the fact that we ourself is basically created around the idea of desire instead of the other way around. And that that's done almost an, on a subconscious level where we're not conscious of that happening. We, we like to see ourselves as individuals, but the reality is that what makes us up is really the desires of what we see around us. So the self is interdependent upon society basically, or, you know, the relationships that we have around us. And that's fascinating. I, because again, especially in our country, we're in in the United States, so keyed in on the idea of being an individual and unique and all of these things. And we're really not. And uh, it's, it's actually a very fascinating subject matter. And the one thing that strikes me about it is of course, when, when I was introduced to the subject matter, it was done from a theological standpoint. Um, But as I understand it, that's an, as you said, that evolved because it was more about human nature, anthropologically and sociologically in its, in the genesis of the, of the interest in it, that, oh, this is how, this is how humanity responds and reacts. And now how does that evolve into our understanding of religion and myth and so forth? Yeah. And, and Gerard would say that the gospels, and he would stand alongside someone like Simone Weil and say that the gospels, first of all, presented an anthropology and perhaps right. primarily an anthropology. So before the gospels say anything about God, they say something really important about human beings and how do we organize ourselves into communities mm-hmm. for good or for evil. And so Gerard will talk about 
and, and again, he's building and fully acknowledges that he's building on the ideas of many people who came before him. But, but speaking about the founding murder, um, all cultures, you know, ancient cultures are going to have that in their mythology. Right. And, and we see echoes of the very same thing in the Bible with the, uh, the death of Abel at the hands of Cain. Because right. what does Cain do? As soon as he kills Abel, he goes off and builds a city. Mm-hmm. And it's a defensive move because he knows that people will be coming for him. And so, but that's a way, uh, that's an echo of every other founding murder story where there's a death of somebody and that creates a boundary and right. that we now have a boundary in time. Um, there's a time before the murder and there's a time after. There's also a, a geographical boundary that's made. And, and that sort of thing. What happens is that founding murder is the thing that creates order. And so we right. see this in mythology. And the big move that Gerard made is to say that, that those founding murder myths are based on something real. Now, over time, they've taken on a very fantastic uh, appearance. Um, but he would say that the origin of those stories go back to uh, a stumbling upon a mechanism that brought order to society. And that was the killing of the first scapegoat, the killing of right. the first victim, because that's what made society possible. Um, because up until that point, there was too much aggression that was being focused in every which direction, because everybody is basically caught in really uh, a crisis of of imitation. And so how are we going to solve this problem? If I'm imitating you and you're imitating me and we're imitating this guy and we're all competing for the same thing, we're all against each other. So how can we form a civilization? Well, when, what ends up happening by accident is that all this aggression gets eventually channeled upon um, either an individual or a group of individuals that are somehow uh, othered in some way and so all of the community's aggression, instead of focused on each other, it's all focused upon this scapegoat, upon this victim. And that uh, victim would either be killed or expelled or somehow maligned in some way. And the community then finds unity. For the first time, right. they can be unified against this individual, against this group. And so now all of this uh, threat of violence that threatened to uh, destroy the community is gone. And so that creates a few different things. So the first scapegoat, it creates peace. And there's almost an awakening of, oh, this is how we solve it. Right. So out of that first killing will come a few things. One will be uh, rituals. So you may actually uh, reenact the ritual because it's almost like an inoculation. So maybe on the anniversary of that date, we reenact the killing either uh, literally or metaphorically some way. Mm-hmm. Um, we also create taboos. Taboos are, are behaviors that led to the crisis in the first place. So we're going to outlaw those behaviors so that the crisis doesn't happen again. And the other thing is, is you're going to create a myth. Is, and a myth in Gerard's uh, interpretation is, is a lie. A myth is a lie that we tell about the violence that absolves us of responsibility. Exactly. So, we, so all of the blame... Uh, for the violence that that led to the need to kill a scapegoat is the fault of the scapegoat. It's a it's a form of blaming the victim, mm-hmm. and so we we mythologize the violence as a way of absolving ourselves. Because this is the thing, and this is you know, we're going to we're talking about Rene Girard today. Maybe another day we'll talk about Ernest Becker and the denial of death and what they both really stand in the tradition of psychoanalysis, which is trying to take 
trying to really discern the unconscious motivators of human behavior and bring them into conscious awareness. Because um, if they remain in the unconscious, they're going to continue to control us and lead to all kinds of terrible things because we right. won't fully understand what's happening. Well, I was pretty fascinated in, in the conversation of the book. You know, he he goes into the whole comparison of Apollonius and Jesus and and how that played out, you know, the mimetic escalation, if you will, of of both of the situations um, with regard to the first stone. So, you know, of course, Jesus, the, the story of Jesus and the woman that's brought before him that was caught in the act of adultery, which is then he is comparing that to Apollonius, who has this crowd of, of Ephesians who are, you know, under some kind of calamity and and that he picks a scapegoat and how the how each of them handled that so differently and i i thought that was pretty fascinating um i don't i don't know if that actually fits into the myth but it felt to me like i could find some comparison there um with the idea of how it played out i don't know if i'm making myself clear or not i, I <laughs> Well, I have let, let so extract, much let, going through my head on the subject matter <laughs> that I'm like trying to make it all work. But, you know, go ahead, explain. Well, let me let me just extract a thought from what you're saying. I think, you know, this is a, a key point of the book, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning, is that um, many people have made the observation that uh, the story of Jesus is very similar to uh, many myths that we've seen where right. uh, somebody's born under special circumstances, they you know, rise up in some way, there's a crisis which leads to their death, uh, but somehow they transcend death and they're reborn. So if you look at the notes and the scale, uh, there's pretty much a one-to-one comparison between the story of the gospel and a lot of similar myths. And But what happens in the Bible is something, this is the real eye-opening thing for René Girard, um, is that many people have dismissed the story of Christ as, well, it's just another myth, because right. it sounds like just another myth. But if you actually start to examine it from the perspective of mimetic theory, you see that actually this is a turning of, this is really almost a reversal or a turning of myth inside out. Because um, in in a typical myth, what's going to happen is when a figure like Christ shows up and, and he's killed, um, that we're always going to hear the story from the perspective of the mob that killed the victim. Right. Um, what happens in the story of the in the Gospels is we we now see. The perspective of the victim. So uh, the really interesting thing about the disciples is that right up until the point Jesus dies, they all get sucked into the mob. Even Peter, he's the last holdout. Exactly. Uh, but even, he, even he ends up denying Christ. Everyone flees. Jesus basically dies alone. And uh, But then once he's resurrected, uh, people come back to him and, you know, in, a, in repentance and thus begins a movement that is based around the innocence of the victim. And so we see that the myth, uh, mythology has been lying to us all along, that when people have been put up on crosses or whatever's been, whatever's happened to them uh, to try and make peace in the community, that it was a false peace and that there, it's only going to lead to more and more violence. And so what ends up, you know, the really revolutionary thing that comes out of the Gospels is an entirely new foundation for human civilization that right. ends the need for victims. And I think this is the really ironic thing is that within Christianity is, I, I, I think people have just really underestimated 
how actually radical Christianity is. I don't think many people in the history of Christianity, apart from somebody like Nietzsche maybe, have really understood how subversive this religion is for people who want to hold on to their violence. Because exactly. I think properly understood, and this is really what the subject is of my my new film, JSUSA, is that I think properly understood, <clears throat> violence just no longer has a place because violence is the foundation of the old civilization. Right. Well, it's amazing because it, it is such an overwhelming part of our norm. We're, we've become so accustomed and anesthetized to the idea of violence now that to even try and determine its origin or whatever seems almost a, a non-issue because it just is. But I really feel like the understanding of, of this basic, and I, I don't know if we could use the word psychological, um, you know, quandary, it, because this is all happening at a psychological level where we're unaware of it. It is important to the conversation. It is important to understand the the genesis of of the violence itself and, and how we each play a part in that. Um, you know, it, it has occurred to me quite often, and you brought up Peter, you know, Peter didn't have any problem that the other disciples didn't have. I mean, they, they were all involved in the same thing. And, and I look back at that and I think, where would I have stood on that day? And it's very easy to want to, with hindsight, say, well, I would have defended or I would have, you know, I, I would have been on the side of Jesus. And the reality is we wouldn't have. Because, no. because of mimetic contagion, because of the pressure to perform to society's expectation, we would have still been involved with the mob. That would have been, and, and as soon as we're able to admit that, there's a freedom that comes from that to say, okay, it's not acceptable, but it, but it is because it explains a lot. It allows me to understand myself from a human standpoint and say, there's things going on that I'm not consciously aware of, but maybe I need to become consciously aware of so as to be able to be better somehow, if that's possible. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, Peter's choice is, is join the mob or become the next scapegoat. Well, that as and, well. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> and, and, and I think that we're all in, in that way. I mean, and this kind of stuff we can talk about it in the past, but I mean, it's going on all the time. I mean, oh, you know, around us. Yes. A, a modern moment that really stuck out to me was uh, the two seven, 2017 Golden Globe Awards, where we're right in the height of the Me Too and the Time's Up uh, uh, scandal or, you know, just the momentum of that movement. And what happened at the Golden Globes was the word went out is that you have to wear black. Mm. And, um, and basically there was, it was very much, I thought it was textbook. I mean, if you're going to teach a class on mimetic theory, <laughs> watch the 2017 Golden Globes. Because what, what we witnessed was a very, very primitive form of human behavior where absolute conformity was demanded. Right. Um, and that basically a mob formed and a mob was dressed in black. And then they went into the theater and they sacrificed a victim on the altar. And in that case, it was Harvey Weinstein. It was Kevin Spacey. There's a point uh, during uh, Seth... Uh, Sorry, I can't remember the name of the host, but there's a point. Uh, no, uh, uh, it'll come to me. But anyway, the uh, host, there's a point. There was a point during the host's monologue where he makes a joke about Kevin Spacey and, and people kind of, uh, you know, he gets some booze and he goes, what? Um, is there anything we can't say to Kevin Spacey? So oh, wow. uh, the, the, the <laughs> point, the point, or the, can't say about Kevin Spacey, like basically these people had become non-persons. Right. They were being sacrificed on the altar. 
Um, and what was happening is the, you know, so the, a mob had formed, victims were brought to the altar and they were metaphorically sacrificed to try and unite the community. And so a myth was being created in that moment. And the myth was this, is that the evil um, exists in these individuals that we're sacrificing. The evil is not in us. We're the right. good people. Right. Never mind that half the people in that room probably owe their career to Harvey Weinstein mm-hmm. in some way or another, or knew about what he was doing, but turned a blind eye because they right. didn't want to rock the boat, or even maybe directly or indirectly enabled it. Um, but that is, I think, a really good demonstration of mimetic theory. Nobody wants to break from the mob, and nobody dared <laughs> to not wear black <laughs> except the head of the Golden Globe Committee. I thought that was really fascinating. She was, um, I'm not sure exactly where she was from, but she was a, a visible minority, and she wore a beautiful sparkling red dress and i thought Hmm. that was uh, a really fascinating choice on her part um but but i think that that helps us think about the dynamic that was going on around the time of christ like if you show up at the golden globes and you don't toe the line guess where the finger blame points next guess whose time is up and so it's very difficult when a mob is mobilized to stand on the side of a scapegoat and this is something too by the way about Mm -hmm. scapegoats is that the perfect scapegoat is one uh, the, the reason why we turn against them is because there's something about them that we feel it's safe to put them on the altar because yeah. nobody will seek retribution. Who's going to stand up in that moment and say, eh, you know, maybe we're being a little too huff, tough on Kevin. He hasn't <laughs> actually been convicted of anything yet. What? Right. <laughs> you know, you must, well, you think, must side with him. I, I, well, I think uh, Gerard actually mentions the idea in the book of it's, it's easier to scapegoat people like the homeless or, you know, the outcasts of society. And of course, in your example right now, the whole, the me too movement, there is a perceived outcast of anybody that has any kind of accusation against them, that there always is first and foremost, a belief of, for the victim, um, as opposed to finding proof or, you know, allowing that there may be a process to finding that proof before we just automatically assume someone is guilty. And you're right, standing with that person, and I witness this in social media quite often, the idea that anytime you you know, you know speak out against the subject matter of the crowd, um, immediately you are chastised at the very least um, and often demonized. And, and then of course, put into the same place as, as the, the supposed guilty. Um, yeah. And that is hard because, and and especially as it comes to the Me Too movement, because I I mean, I have things in my past where, you know, those are very large triggers for me. And so I always do want to believe the victim, but I do see that, that there is a very big uh, danger in, in automatically demonizing somebody based on accusation. Well, and and I think that scapegoat moment. Yeah. And, and, and again, I think that the important thing to remember with mimetic theory is, is that what Gerard is not saying is that the victim is always innocent. Um, right. You know, clear, clearly somebody like Harvey Weinstein is guilty of all kinds of things. Right. <laughs> um, and, but at the same time, we're telling a lie to ourselves to say that if we just get rid of Harvey, everything will be good. Yeah. yeah. No, because what mimetic theory does is, is it's always, uh, sorry, well, not mimetic theory, but what mimetic theory shows us that we do is we're constantly externalizing evil. We're projecting evil onto mm-hmm. someone else. Yes. We mythologize uh, what's going on. So we don't have to examine ourselves. That's the last thing we want to do. Right. And so, um, you know, I said, you know, I thought a way better thing to have happened at those golden globes is yes, everybody wear black, but instead of handing out awards tonight, we're all going to go up to the mic 
we're all going to repent of mm. of something that we have done to enable this culture and we're going to wow. commit to changing it and we're going to say that you know what there's some people who have been held up um, who've done some terribly egregious things but let's be honest with ourselves we all knew it was happening right we all profited from it we did nothing so let's change. And I, I think that would have been a true thing, a true change. And and this is where I think Gerard, he's so prescient, is he says, you know, um, what he calls the Satan, which is really he's not mm-hmm. seeing it as a as an individual, but as right. really this 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 contagion. It's very, very deceptive. And so what's happening today, and he really is writing about this a decade or two ago, is that it's actually now our concern for victims which is the most insidious form of scapegoating. Um, right. Because what it, what it does is it ocu- it allows us to occupy the so-called high gr- moral high ground. And so now we can completely justify our violence because we're doing it on behalf of victims. So how could we be victimizers? Right. We're only concerned for the victims. But what's really going on is, is you know, we're seeking, you know, the whole thing of uh, moral grandstanding and and that sort of thing. We're basically, uh, you know, on this never-ending uh, uh, inquisition. But it's a form of of self-purification. It's a it's it's a way of trying to elevate ourselves. So our concern for victims has nothing to do with our concern for victims. It has right. to do with trying to justify ourselves well, and right. set ourselves up as the model. Because if we if we if we identify the evil outside of ourselves, we now can set ourselves away from it and, and believe that we're okay yeah. without having to recognize the potential within us to act in the same manner. And to me, I, I look at that and I, and you know, you bring up the idea of the Satan. Um, I, I found one of the, one of the sections of the book and I have it here because I thought this was so um, amazing in its application he talks about where Jesus mentions, how can Satan cast out Satan? Mm-hmm. And then he goes into this very long conversation on it. But one of the things that he said is that the crucifixion is one of the events in which Satan restores and consolidates his power because it goes from an all against all to that all against one, that scapegoating mechanism. Mm-hmm. And it permit, you know, then it permits basically, well, he's known as the prince of this world. It, per- it permits him the ability to calm the anger of the crowd, restore the peace, that whole catharsis. But then that allow- in doing so, that allows the process or the cycle to begin all over again, which keeps him in business. Mm-hmm. And, and I found that fascinating because I, I think that's part of the problem is that we, as- like, I think you mentioned this, the idea that as soon as we've identified the scapegoat, we have the mob mentality has taken over even to the point of violence or death. We now assume that order is restored without recognizing that the cycle is set up to begin all over again and will begin all over. It's, it's, it's going to. And, and so you, you bring up the, the Golden Globes, but the reality is that that situation is going to play out again. It may not play out in that exact fashion, obviously, um, but it will play out. And, and it is playing out every day. I oh, mean, sure. uh, and, and I think that we are really caught up in that. Uh, you know, somebody I listen to a lot is Sam Harris, and, and he's really... Mm-hmm one of the people who's, who's woken up to this and just even, I was just listening to him today, uh, doing an interview on the whole concept of wokeness <laughs> and how I think the concept of being woke is ultimately a form of, of scapegoating. Um, yeah. because what is, what does it mean to be woke? It means to, uh, form new targets, new enemies, and to build community around the problem people. 
and to find a way to cancel them, to find a way to expel them and that sort of thing. The whole cancel culture is the same type of thing. You know, Gerard said to think that you uh, don't have a scapegoat is to have a scapegoat. <laughs> so, so I think if you yeah. ask a lot of the people who are really at the forefront of these movements, like they're not scapegoating anybody. They're fighting on behalf of people who uh, maybe don't have enough agency to fight for themselves or mm-hmm. fighting against the system or whatever. But um, I think if you actually psychologically examine a lot of what's going on, um, it's it's all, I think, mimetic theory just gives us such a really helpful tool to analyze it. But that's kind of going on at a broad level, um, you know, coming back to just as an individual, how, I, how do I live my life every day? Because um, I get triggered by this. I get triggered by things all the time. Right. Um, and, and I will start to, I'll find myself at certain moments thinking, oh, certain people just drive me nuts, you know? And, <laughs> and, uh, if these, if only we could get these people to see, you know, so I start to think about what, what's wrong with them and how they need to change. And I think what mimetic theory is constantly calling mm-hmm. us back to is when you feel that trigger, when you're tempted to join a mob, um, you, you really, at that point, you need to instead go, metaphorically to the cross, go to the communion table and you need to kneel down before Christ, the victim. And Mm -hmm. that's really what I think communion is, is a taking in of the awareness that we are all scapegoaters. Yes. That, um, that the evil doesn't exist out there in the world, um, until we bring it out of our hearts. Right. Cause it exists within us. It's within us. And so we can manifest it, but we need to be in a constant state of repentance and a constant state of self-awareness and and self-examination. And that is something that Gerard, again, just in the tradition of psychoanalysis is is trying to teach us. You know, I I write films. I also teach screenwriting. I've been teaching it for a couple of decades. And and that's something I always talk to my students about is that um, if you look at a typical feature film, um, your protagonist is almost always um, stuck in a, in a self-defeating, self-destructive pattern that is completely unconscious. And the goal of the story is to bring that pattern into conscious awareness so they can actually right. come to see it and deal with it. And, uh, you know, I think about Walter White in Breaking Bad. Um, he kept saying oh, yeah. he's, he's cooking and meth and becoming the biggest meth dealer in the southwestern United States for his family, to provide for his right. family. <laughs> But there's a point at which that he has to admit that it really goes back to him feeling passed over and him feeling resentment. And it's really about his identity. And so, but it took a long time, but, but really, again, I think that that's really one of the tasks of life. And I think storytellers key into that is to, is to become aware of the unconscious motivators of our behavior, because until we do, we're, we're at their mercy. Well, for sure. And and I think one of the places that that plays out, and I'm having to examine that within myself as well, is, is the whole idea of the questioning of our religious belief systems or, you know, uh, it's commonly referred to as deconstruction, although, you know, that's a secondary definition, I think. Um, but the idea that, you know, we identify those things that we no longer agree with, suddenly we are swinging ourselves to a whole other side, but the pendulum swings wide. And and so then we go into that idea, like you were speaking of that being woke, um, which of course has become a term all of its own. And, and now we're demonizing another set of people without still recognizing that within ourselves is still the same propensity. 
you know? Yeah, and, we think we're making moral progress, but all we're doing right. is finding a new group of victims. <laughs> exactly. And, and the problem- we're just reorganizing. It's the same structure, but it's just a right. different flavor. Well, and so we go from um, saying, well, at least for me, oh, I'm tired of this um, us versus them mentality. I want to get to where there's unity. Well, the reality is every perspective is going to have that us versus them mentality. And it's only when we begin to address that within ourselves that there's any kind of difference. We can't, we can't focus or force other people to conform to our ideas of unity and, no. and expect, expect this to go away. We, we can only deal with ourselves. And again, that becomes a very introspective thing. And a lot of people are not very interested in introspective or, or aware that there's a need for it in all fairness. Um, no. and, and of course, you know, it's saying like we talked about with this a little bit ago, the idea is much of this is on, is below the conscious level. So it's, it's not something that we're aware is necessary. And this idea is relatively new. Um, I remember when I first came across it, I, um, I had not yet been kicked out of church that was coming up, but, um, I, I spoke with somebody about it and I'm like, oh, this is so exciting. I'm, I'm reading about this, you know, my medic theory and it was just blank stared, you know? Mm -hmm. So I don't think a lot of people are as aware of it because no, it is such it's, a new thing. It's, it's a new thing. It's also controversial. Um, oh, very, because yeah. yeah, I mean, and new, I mean, it's been around for a few decades and there's a right. real cottage industry that is, that has grown up around it. Michael Harden, Mm -hmm. uh, as you mentioned, he was uh, friends with Renee and and was, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Renee, I think, said to him personally that, you know, he felt Michael was one of his best in interpreters. Right. Um, and uh, so it's kind of been percolating at the fringe. There was actually a book came out a couple of years ago that uh, is trying to apply mimetic theory to uh, anthropology. And I actually had the privilege of sending, I had two copies. So I sent one copy to Stephen Pinker because uh, <laughs> he had kind of heard of Girard. But when I first talked to Stephen about Girard, he sort of... Uh, said, I don't have any time for continental philosophers with totalizing theories. <laughs> and, and, um, but, but the second time I interacted with him a couple of years later, he was actually quite intrigued. I think he probably had heard some more about Girard. And so he was intrigued to learn more. And, um, and so I think that it's been controversial on a couple levels. Number one is um, Girard dares to say that the Hebrew and the Christian scriptures actually have something important to say. Right. And, we're in the process of scapegoating right now, the Bible, the history of yes, Christianity, yes. Uh, evangelicals, whoever. Um, so the last thing we want to hear is that this thing that we're in the process of scapegoating <laughs> actually, which gave has us, value. actually had value. Um, yeah. And Ger Gerard talks all about that as well. And he said, that's almost an inevitable thing to happen. Right. Um, but uh, so I think it's also controversial because what Gerard, you know, many people have equated what Rene Gerard is talking about to Darwin's theory of evolution hmm. in that it is a, a grand theory, a grand unified theory of human behavior. And right. we're at a time, so it kind of creates a meta narrative. And we're at a time in history where we are in the process of deconstructing every meta narrative. We're not, yes. so it totally is, it's not on trend. Um, and so people aren't very open to that. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, this is one of the tasks that a lot of people I know in the mimetic theory community have been struggling to do myself included is to, how do we move this from a fringe academic movement to something in the mainstream? So Hellbound, for instance, was very mm -hmm. much informed by mimetic theory. Right. My new, my new film, JSUSA, 
is also I call it my my mimetic my mimetic theory film that never mentions mimetic <laughs> theory or, or Rene Girard, but what it does is it tries to give you a way of understanding right. uh, the role of religion in the world through the eyes of mimetic theory, and you know just getting back to you know Jesus in this is that and, and the radical nature of Christianity. I think this is something that Girard really helps us see is that the foundation of humanity is is blood and violence and death. Right, right. Um, the United States cannot maintain hegemony in the world unless Donald Trump sits down, as Obama did every Tuesday afternoon, and decide who they're going to launch drone strikes against. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are how many nuclear submarines roaming the world right. um, with missiles ready to go. There's millions of troops. And that this is how we maintain order in the world. It is through violence or the threat mm. of violence. Yes. That is the foundation of civilization. Um, and if you dare to question that, that's why you get kicked out of your church or something like that. Mm-hmm. Because what you're, you're questioning the foundation of civilization. That's exactly the reason why Jesus went up on the cross. Right. The things that give all the authorities power, he threatened. And so, um, but what what Jesus gives us though, is a new foundation. So it's not just a critique. Mimetic theory is not just a critique of the right. world. It is. It also shows us a new way to found society. And now at the foundation of that new civilization called the kingdom of God is also a victim. Yeah. But instead of gathering around the victim, pointing the finger and saying, yes, we did the right thing. We gather around the victim, in this case, Jesus, we kneel and we say, um, I repent. Mm-hmm. I I choose to uh, form community on a completely different basis. Instead of forming a community over and against another, we're going to form a community that opens ourselves to others. Because this is the key thing. And this is where I think I co-discovered René Girard and, and Ernest Becker at the same time, mm-hmm. um, is this gets us to the thing that's really, I think, underlying even mimetic theory, which is the fear of death. Oh, and for sure. Yeah, and the the fear of death is the thing that makes us our primary directive. Then becomes self preservation, yes. which manifests itself as fight or flight. But if the fear of death can be dealt with, we are suddenly free to love, because right. we are no longer just seeking to preserve ourselves, but we can actually imitate Christ. Because remember, uh, mimetic theory—it's all about imitation. A lot mm-hmm. of us, you know. Jesus at no point ever told us to worship him, but at many points did he say, imitate me, do what I do. Don't imitate each other. Because you know what happens when you imitate each other? You become rivals. Well, you know what? If you imitate me, I'll never be your rival because that's not my character. I reflect who God is and God has no rival. Mm -hmm. And so we can never get in a mimetic crisis if we imitate God. So it's a way out of the violence of the world. I think it's stunning when you actually see it. Well, it is. And and unfortunately, we spend a, a great amount of our time, of course, making Jesus fit into our model of, of, you know, what we want to believe as opposed to who he was. And, and that lack of interpretation doesn't allow us to follow him in the way that we're supposed to, because we're busy following our idea of him as opposed yeah. to who he really was. And and I, again, you know, that, that's something that's come up for me before the idea of, of Jesus saying, follow me as I follow my father, you know, and the idea of trying to deconstruct what that means. Like, so even myself, I sit very cautiously and say, 
I, I don't know that I truly understand who Jesus really was because I had, you know, a certain upbringing, a certain understanding that was given to me, a very violent Jesus in all honesty. And, and so to me, that's abhorrent to think about following that. And it should be. Um, but that wasn't the real Jesus, you know? So I think, I think that a lot of what happens with anybody pushing away from this idea is that, that they're trying to reconcile what that imitation is supposed to look like. Yeah. And I think we overcomplicate things too. Um, oh, for sure. I'm sure we do. <laughs> I mean, because I think the invitation comes back to the, the two greatest commandments is that God needs yeah. to be your priority. So you have to attach your identity to something that's not dying in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to attach your identity, first of all, to something that transcends the world. And so love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So that means that that God needs to be your model. And then in light of that, love your neighbor as yourself. So right at the center of that is sacrifice. But instead, you know, instead of sacrificing your neighbor, sacrifice yourself for your neighbor. Right, right. And that, and that is as simple as it gets. And, you know, because you look at something like even I was just thinking as you were talking about the Protestant Reformation, well, that was just a mimetic crisis. Mm-hmm. And so everyone thinks this is, the, this is the insidious thing about it is that everyone thinks by creating their own statement of faith, that they're differentiating themselves from other people. But what they're actually doing is becoming more and more similar. Right. Because the, the the more emphasis we put on a statement of faith, it doesn't matter what the content is. The point is we're we're all similar in that we're using a statement of faith to define ourselves. So the the more we emphasize it, the more like each other we become. Mm-hmm. And yet we think we're actually making ourselves different. But all we're doing is creating the grounds for yet another um, crisis event where somebody's going to have to be sacrificed because yeah. we can't all be the model. Um, and, and so what ends up happening is we want to be the model and we're going to eradicate anybody who, who doesn't a- agree with us because they become a threat to our system. Um, the thing that gives us power, the thing that gives us identity. Right. Um, so we form a mob against them and we get rid of them. Yeah. And it happens, it happens from all perspectives. Again, I think, I think that bears repeating because we, we tend to, again, demonize the, the them and not realize that we are the them. And, and so we, we, we tend to, again, set everything up to go a certain way, like you said, the way we want it to, without realizing we're a part of the problem. And, and, and again, that takes so much time to really sit and consider and a, a good amount of I don't know what a good word to use. I don't know that humbleness is the right word, but an ability to self-evaluate, you know, from an honest perspective and say, where, where do I fall short in this? You know, and, and I love what you just said about the idea of it's not about sacrificing the other. It's about sacrificing ourselves. If that's what we're going to imitate Christ, that's what we should be doing. Um, and that, and that's something I've suggested to somebody in a conversation at one point, And your comment brought that back to me is, you know, we, we have a tendency to, extricate people from our lives because they don't practice the same way we do, or they don't believe the same way we do. And well, I, I can't have anything to do with that. And and my mindset has always been, but shouldn't that be the person you're trying to go after? And shouldn't your response be that I would be willing to step in front of this person to take whatever's coming cosmically? Mm-hmm. If, if I were truly imitating Christ, wouldn't I be willing to lay down my life for this person, even though they don't deserve it in my estimation? That's, yeah. It seems like imitation in its, you know, sincerest form. Yeah. And as a friend of mine, uh, Wayne Northey says, you know, that the test case of whether you, uh, 
love uh, God is if you love your neighbor. And the test case mm. of whether you love your neighbor is whether you love your enemy. Mm. And it's like, oh man, who can pass this test? <laughs> you know, nobody. Um, exactly. But I think that, but I think that emphasis on self-reflection. I mean, it, it is so. Uh, you know, it's funny. Donald Trump is such a fascinating phenomenon. I, uh, like I said, I write novels for middle grade students. So I've actually spent a lot of time in, touring across Western Canada. I do mm-hmm. writing workshops at schools. And and I just wonder if Donald Trump knows that I can go in any grade three classroom in Saskatchewan, Canada, say his name. And just at the mention of his name, kids laugh. Or if a kid oh. wants to be, if a kid wants to give a funny answer to a question, they go, Donald Trump. And everybody oh, giggles. Goodness. So he's such an interesting phenomenon, but he triggers so many people. But I think when somebody like Donald, number one, he, he is, uh, I think he's way smarter than most people give him credit for. And I think he strategically triggers people all the time. But I think whenever we feel triggered by somebody like that, it's so easy to just go, oh, Trump, we just need to get rid of him. (laughs) Um, But I think a, a more enlightened response is to say, you know what, why do I feel so threatened by him? Why do I feel so angry? What is he triggering in me? He's threatening something in me. Yeah. He's making me afraid. Um, he's, he's making me feel self-righteous. Am I really okay? So he's, he's behaving this way toward a certain people group or something like that. And I, you know, have I never done that before? Is that, is that behavior totally beneath me? I mean, what's actually going on inside of us when we encounter an individual like this? I think that in many ways, he is, um, you know, just his presence in the world. <laughs> I mean, who knows how history is going to judge it, but I think <laughs> it can be a really helpful thing because he is constantly bringing things to light. Um, and if we pay attention to what's going on, I think it could be actually really helpful um, that are, you know, but uh, not if we're just going to look at React. Trump as the sum of all evil and just... Right. Yeah, whatever. But if he prompts us to examine ourselves as a society, to go, how on earth do we reach a point where this yes. guy yes. was who we thought was the solution to our problems? I mean, well, again, can, it he, comes back to us. Exactly. He didn't seize the White House. No, exactly. We people, put him there. <laughs> people, yeah, had their own, you know, uh, you know, uh, march into Jerusalem and, and lay yeah. down the palm branches and yeah. here you go. Yeah. And yet, exactly pe- right. yeah. So, but of course people will say, well, no, I didn't put him in the white house. It was right. those people over there. Well, but again, you know, uh, going back to your example of the golden globes, I, we all bear a responsibility in, in former fashion, you know, either we bear a responsibility for direct support or we bear a responsibility for doing nothing in the face of what we consider to be wrong or evil doing. And, That's right. and so we all bear that responsibility. Um, I, I do find it's funny because as you brought him up I, I, and you mentioned, why does he make me feel self-righteous? I had to kind of mentally check myself because that is my response. Um, and, and, you know, and then, and that's somewhat embarrassing to admit. I mean, I try (laughs) not to hate people. Um, I am not a fan of Donald Trump in any shape or form. Um, I don't think he represents the best of humanity, but then again, neither do I, if I'm honest. And, and so I have a very good friend who has challenged me quite a few times and, and he really has made an impact where he asks me, what about that person is mirroring something back to you about yourself that you don't like? And that's a tough question to answer because we don't want to admit that what we find distasteful in somebody else is actually a reflection of ourselves somehow. Well, I'll go to movies again. I talk about how I teach screenwriting. I always do a segment on monsters and the mm-hmm. word monster means warning. 
And if you look at a, uh, you know, I go back, I was raised, you know, in the 1980s um, to the teen slasher films of the 80s. You know, I gave us Freddy Krueger and (laughs) and, uh, uh, Michael Myers and uh, Jason Voorhees, you know. Um, But it's really interesting if you look at, we'll say Freddy Krueger is such a great example, um, that what will happen is a monster will appear on the scene. And at first they just seem like this repository of evil, this otherworldly thing that's just come and, and they're victimizing us and it's horrifying. But what happens as we progress through the film is we come to see that, in fact, in the Nightmare on Elm Street, it was the parents of these teens who were being victimized who gave birth to Freddie. Right. And guess how they exactly. gave birth to him? It was through a mob sacrificing yep. him. And so now the sins of the parents are coming to visit the kids. And so um, it's only when a character finally makes that connection that we bear a responsibility for the creation of this monster, that they right. gain the insight that shows them how to defeat the monster. Exactly. And yeah. so I think that horror movies, again, I think film is so interesting. I don't know if the writers, if Wes Anderson was thinking about Wes Anderson, sorry, <laughs> uh, not Wes Anderson, Wes Craven was uh, right. thinking about that when he wrote the film. Um, but I think that you'll see this percolating up in art over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm a big fan of, of horror films in that regard, because I think that they're so insightful, uh, in terms of, uh, of, of trying to show us this, that, that if we continue to keep pointing the finger, we're going to de- be defeated over and over and over again. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there's that example and it's a silly, I, I guess it's silly. I don't know. It, it's profound in its, in its simplicity. The idea of when you point the finger at somebody else, you have the several fingers pointing back at yourself. But that is yeah. absolutely true in this situation. That which we find distasteful in other people is something we probably are guilty of ourselves. Um, I actually wrote down uh, a few weeks ago, my husband made a comment and I thought it was so profound. I wrote it down. I'm like, there has to be something written about that. But it it was the statement that um, my sin looks disgusting on you. And I was like, <laughs> whoa, that is deep. Because yeah. that is the reality that most of us live our lives from, whether we know it or not. It, it's the demonization of, of something we dislike about ourselves. And we transfer that outward to somebody else so that we can, so that we can say, well, look how awful that is and, dis- and distance ourselves from it, even though we know on some level that we're guilty of it. And, well, um, that that reminds the, me of a saying, uh, a friend of mine, Archbishop uh, Lazar Proalo, he's a Orthodox oh, yeah, Archbishop yeah. up in Canada here. Mm-hmm. He says that moral outrage is a form of public confession. Ooh, that's, now see, that's profound. That's awesome. I, I thought like it was that just, one too. I'm going to have to write that down too. <laughs> well, and I think there's also an envy and a jealousy because when we see people doing sins that we secretly harbor, it's it's almost like, I wish I was that bold. Right. You know? <laughs> Um, you know, I think about that, that how much sin doesn't happen due to lack of opportunity rather than moral well, for righteousness. Sure. Right. And so when people do have the opportunity, uh, think about uh, poor Brad Pitt. I mean, think about the opportunities that get put in front of Brad Pitt every day that the average male never has to, has to face. And so yeah. what a, uh, you know, <laughs> the fact that he hasn't been mired in something like the Me Too campaign is, you know, I think that actually speaks yeah. quite highly of his moral character because, you know, once you reach a certain status as a male celebrity, for instance, I mean, uh, I just can't imagine the things that you have to face. Right. And so for us to sit here, in, and again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Brad Pitt, I'm a huge fan, but I'm just saying somebody like that who is viewed as, uh, you know, uh, a sex symbol or or something like that, if he were to fall into scandal, people would just love it. 
um, because it just, the moral righteousness is just right. going to be floor, flowing <laughs> out of our pores, you know, but uh, because we don't walk in that world, we have no idea um, what that's like. Um, but it, it, it's, it's, again, our, our way of pouncing on these people uh, when they fall is, is just another way of uh, purifying ourselves or making us sure. self-justification, I think, and also a bit of envy. Yeah. If we're I think, really honest. You know, at, at, I mean, at the risk, this is another whole rabbit trail we could go down, but I'm often um, amazed, you know, as it, as it pertains to conversations regarding uh, homosexuality and whatnot and people using biblical reference for that, especially out of Romans, you know, to demonize. And, and I always kind of, I always kind of chuckle a little bit. I'm like, so you've picked the one thing out of a list that you're probably not involved with so that you can demonize it and feel better about yourself with regard to the rest of the list that you're leaving out yeah. of a conversation. But, but that's what we do. Like you're saying, we, we, we distance ourselves because that's not a part of our experience. So we are actually able to discuss it with some form of distaste and not feel responsibility for it without recognizing the fact that given the right set of circumstances, we certainly could be guilty. Well, yeah. Uh, and I, the same thing. Well, and we do, and as Gerard, Rene Gerard points this out too, in terms of historically, he says, we'll, we scapegoat the past. We scapegoat our oh, ancestors. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I always think about Germany, Nazi Germany. I mean, Hitler in a sense, I mean, is a scapegoat because you have to think about, we, we all want to say something that there was something uniquely evil about Adolf Hitler. Right. But, but Adolf Hitler, I mean, he, <laughs> He had an army. He had millions of people. He had right. so many people who were bought into this thing, you know. Now, what they were bought into their own scapegoating scheme. But now, now we, what we do is we look back at the past and we scapegoat people. And again, this is no defense of Adolf Hitler, but I'm just saying that we can't see him as the repository of evil. Um, we have to see that an entire world was caught up in anti-Semitism and yes. he ended up manifesting it in a very extreme way because he had the opportunity to do so. Right. And even, you know, if you look at the history of how that happened, even that was something that they arrived at after trying other options. But um, we almost want to forget that boatloads of Jews were turned away from the shores of America. Yes, exactly. I was just going to mention that. So yes, he was the face of it, but there was plenty of people that were involved. Well, enablers and people who knew what was happening, but yes. did nothing or actively participated. But we want to all look at Adolf Hitler as this, this almost superhuman right. uh, form of evil where it's like, no, not, a, not even close. Right. Um, it, yes, he was a, an evil guy, but he was part of an evil machine yes. um, that was tolerated even by other countries until it kind of became too inconvenient to tolerate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the, again, that's a, that's called mythology. Oh where yeah. <laughs> we, we tell a story about Adolf Hitler that justifies us yes. and heaps all the evil onto him. And yeah. that's a lie. It, for sure. But again, even, I mean, that's a very drastic example of it, but you're right. We're all guilty of that. Any, any given day mm-hmm. uh, of creating those ideas that allow ourselves to excuse ourselves from something as opposed to, you know, looking at it and saying, where do I fall short in this area? Yeah. So. And, and I think, you know, again, I think Hitler's a great example of where our scapegoats doesn't mean they're innocent, but it just means that um, it, it means that we are attributing to them um, something in addition to the bad things that they did. We are attributing the sins of the entire community upon. Right. Them. Right. 
and, and almost trying to sacrifice them as a way of, you know, the same way that he did that to the Jews um, and other people that he found to be undesirable. What, he, you know, Germany is at a point, you know, when he's rising to power where they're kind of still recovering from the First World War, there's all kinds of terrible things happening. Well, what is the cause of our problems? Oh, these people are the cause of our problems. Right. And so he builds community around a scapegoating of the Jews and other quote unquote undesirable people in German society. So it's so interesting again, that this, this is how we form community. It looks different ways. It mm-hmm. looks, it takes on different looks at different points in history. Uh, there's types of scapegoating that we find very appealing. Uh, there's other types of scapegoating, such as what happened in Nazi Germany that we find absolutely horrifying. Right. right. Um, but it's all really the same thing. Yes, it is in the, in the mechanism it is. So yes, which well, this is, has been a great conversation, Kevin, and I really wish that we can continue. I'm getting notes from production here to wrap it up. Um, mm-hmm. But I definitely want you to come back because you had mentioned, uh, of course, Ernest Becker, and I would like to discuss that book. That is not a book I've read. Um, so you'll have to give me a little bit of time to read it, but I would love to have you back, come back and let's, let's continue the conversation because, as you mentioned, they kind of go together. Um, and I'll take your word for that. So <laughs> <laughs> what was the name of Ernest Becker's book that you had mentioned? It's called The Denial of Death. Denial of Death. I knew it was something with death. Um, and I probably am in denial over that because that's one of my sticking points, right? So at the moment, so <laughs> nobody wants to think about death. But no. but thanks so much for coming and chatting with me. And of course, introducing Rene Girard's book. Um, I, I do think it's becoming more of a mainstream idea. I'm hearing it more and more. However, I mean, that could just be, you know, the, the people I've surrounded myself with. But I, I do think it's become more of the conversation. I know for myself in my studies, uh, I'm actually working on a doctorate in psychology. I've actually mentioned my medic theory in a lot of my writing in that. So hopefully more people are going to be talking about it to where it becomes a more mainstream conversation in the future. Um, yeah, I think, I think Rene Girard is one of those intellectuals who is percolating in the background and informing right. the, the intellectuals who are then, um, you know, some of those people like Brian Zond even are, yes. are popularizing uh, these ideas. And so, right. and I kind of put myself in that category as well, maybe not so much <laughs> an intellectual, but at least I'm helping, uh, bring a bunch of these intellectuals together in a documentary or something. Yeah. Like and that's that awesome. And trying to, uh, bring it to a mass audience. Well, and that, and that is part of the thing. It, it has to be palatable. Um, you know, reading something very scholarly is, is kind of intimidating for a lot of people. And, and so making it palatable is, is a great service in, in the discussion of mimetic theory, because it allows for a, a better understanding and from multiple sources. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that you're definitely in that realm. And so that I think that's amazing. And I thank you personally for it, because uh, again, that's a part of my process as well. Um, so with that, we'll wrap it up and say to everyone, we hope you have enjoyed the conversation with Kevin today and our discussion of Rene Girard and I see Satan fall like lightning. And we will talk with you next time. Thanks very much. Thank you.